Hey everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiana Hansen-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product. And we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I'm really excited today to have uh, someone who I have heard of and I've been um, in circles with, but I've actually never had a chance to meet one-on-one. And so we're really happy to have you here today. Uh, Carlos Gonzalez de Villa Ambrosia, who is the founder and CEO of Product School. Many of you will know Product School, and we'll certainly ask him to tell us a little bit more about it. But for those of you who uh, maybe have been under a rock and haven't heard of it, it's known as the global leader in product management training with a community of over 1 million. Um, I think it's almost over a million and a half at this point, product professionals. Product school instructors are real-world product leaders who are working at top companies around the world, including Netflix, Airbnb, Uber, Amazon, Google, Facebook, just a few of those little companies you might have heard of. Uh, Carlos, welcome to the show. Uh, Where are you zooming in from? Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm uh, zooming in from San Francisco. Amazing. Thank you. And how's San Francisco treating you today? You know, San Francisco, it's hot and cold, uh, but I'm, I'm at home and I can't complain. I'm looking very formal from the from the upper part, up, but uh, I'm wearing my PJ, so I'm very comfortable. <laughs> I like it. No pod, no pod ho- uh, guest has ever told me they're wearing their PJs, but I appreciate the transparency. Um, okay, so Carlos, I think one of the first things I'd love to start with is, as I said, kind of jokingly in the intro, I think most of our listeners will know the product school, but maybe as uh, if you were having to explain it to your grandmother or if you were having to explain it to your four-year-old niece, what is the product school today? What does it represent um, for its users and what does it represent to you? Great question. Well, if I had to simplify this to its bones, I would say we teach product management. Full stop. Uh, You allow me to to elaborate a little bit more. Um, I would say that um, we're the the global leader in product management training. This is a solution to my own problem because when I was uh, breaking into product management, there was no product school. I I studied uh, computer science and I was one of those uh, engineers that didn't want to spend the rest of uh, his time coding. However, I didn't even know what the options were. I just knew that I just wanted to leverage my technical background in a different way. So at that point, my solution was to come to the US from Spain and um, went to business school. And that was also very interesting. However, it was the opposite side of the problem. <laughs> I realized that business is important and uh, there's a lot of topics that at some point I would probably apply. However, it was very, very high level and hard to apply in in some scenarios. So I found product as the perfect intersection in between engineering school and business school. And that's why I created the school I wish I had. I love that. Take us back to those early days. So you were how old? You were leaving Spain with what accomplished? Like, Take us on the journey, uh, almost as if we were back in time and kind of watching this. Yeah, so I started the company nine years ago in the summer of 2014. And um, it's definitely not an overnight success. I bootstrapped the business for the first seven and a half years, especially the early days were really, really rough because I just had this idea. I 
I knew I wanted to, to create the school of my dreams. At the same time, I couldn't afford to invest in a beautiful campus or in very um, incredible professors or in a beautiful curriculum. It was just, I was the product. So I knew that I knew a lot that I learned throughout my years, uh, building different companies in different capacity. And, and that, that is something that wasn't easily found uh, in books. And I decided to be my own MVP, minimum viable product. And what that means is that I created a, a class offline in San Francisco and I said, I'm going to teach product management. And uh, if, if people, are there any people interested in, in this, uh, let's make it happen. And um, I, it sold out. But the reason why it sold out, it's not because a lot of people knew about me and, and they just wanted to see my face. The reason why it sold out is because during the previous months, I was doing a lot of work behind the scenes to build that initial community. Um, for example, I was organizing a lot of events in different co-working spaces in the city. I was publishing those events in websites such as Eventbrite or Meetup. Those events would, would be free. It was just basically an hour uh, long workshop where I would be demoing something related to product management, such as how to create a prototype without code, how to run an A-B testing, how to do different pieces of, of the product management cycle uh, with the hope that some people would find value in that and hopefully would take the next steps. So I was doing that, you know, pretty much every other day in different working spaces to tap into different audiences. I was also very active online. I was answering a lot of questions related to product management on discussion forums such as Quora or Reddit you know, like trying to add value up front and, 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 and also be very realistic with my expectations. I knew that I didn't have to raise money to test this idea. I also didn't need to become a unicorn or, or, or even invest in an office just to get some interest. And then when, when we noticed that absolutely there were so many people coming to multiple events, they, were, they became rollers. I, I, I knew them by their name. They knew about me. They met other people. We started building a very, very small community in San Francisco of passionate people in product management, specifically aspiring product managers that wanted to, to get that first PM job. So then is when I launched that first paid training with me as the instructor and uh, it sold out. So for the first two years, I was basically doing that. I was the instructor for every single cohort. The classes would be on weeknights or weekends. So all the students would be able to keep their full-time jobs. And then I found this uh, magical person who is a top recruiter, product recruiter at LinkedIn. He used to work directly with the co-founders before he worked with Mark Zuckerberg at Meta, uh, who literally created the product practice in, in those two organizations. And he took a chance on me. He decided to be the first instructor other than me. And that also started creating a domino effect because other product leaders in really cool companies like Google, Airbnb, Netflix, Uber, the ones that you mentioned at the beginning, saw that there, were, there, there, there was a place for them to, to contribute and that they could do that in a way that they didn't have to, to put their life or their work on hold. So when you came, uh, obviously you had skills that you were able to impart to people if you're setting up time to explain what an A-B test is and how to build a prototype, et cetera. Where did you glean that experience? Um, and talk to us a little bit about kind of the skills you brought with you from Spain to the States. Yes. Well, I started two companies before product school, actually in education, because I have a love-hate relationship with education. Uh, 
I'm a very curious person. I always trying to learn. At the same time, I don't always um, believe that the best way of learning is a, a traditional way, right? So in school, I was like, okay, but I, I want to learn more from this instructor, but I don't want to learn from this other instructor, or I I want to learn other things that are not in the classroom. And, and then it's when I started using the internet and, and all of that. So I've been always very, very curious about education is in particular solving my own problems. And I learned a lot that way just by, by building, right. By, by trying and, and error in addition to obviously the, the formal education that I got in, in engineering school and business school. Um, but there were, there was also a pivotal moment in my career when uh, my previous company was invested by a, a, an accelerator called 500 startups. And that gave me the opportunity to spend four months in a place in Mountain View, Silicon Valley with incredible mentors. So it was like a school for founders, basically, where there were 20 startups building at the same time and there were no teachers. However, there would be a lot of incredible product leaders from Google, founders of Airbnb, very influential figures in Silicon Valley that would stop by just, just to provide feedback, just to make introductions. And, and I really love that model because I was, I was building and I was also getting incredible points of view from, from people who are not teachers and uh, are, most of them are actually based in Silicon Valley. So I think there's been multiple influences in my life that led me to then create school of my dreams, not just because of the topic, obviously the, the topic is important, right? But the format is even more important. To me, I believe in lifelong learning. I never understood why we are supposed to study full-time until our mid-20s, and then we are supposed to work full-time until we die. And, and then what about the learning piece, right? And so that component was important. That's why the, the, we picked this to, to, be, to happen on weeknights or weekends. The other part to me was that I believe that the best instructors, the best teachers are actually practitioners, uh, or at least in our, in our industry, in product management. So I, I want to learn from the people who are actually building and not just building for the sake of it, building some of the best products in the world. And um, there's a reason why these people want to keep building, right? Because they love it. So finding a structure where this is not just flexible for the students so they don't have to put their life on hold. It's also flexible for the instructors was, was magical. Um, there was another component that was important to me, which was community, right? Making sure that people who are showing up to these classes do it for the right reasons. I went to a lot of classes in my career because my parents wanted me to go. <laughs> I, I was, you know, I had to get some credits to get my diploma, uh, but I wasn't really hungry for learning certain topics. People who come to product school are crazy hungry about getting a product management job or getting a product promotion. And so if you put those ingredients together, you can really create magic. You really can. And you hit on something there that um, we didn't plan for this, but you know, what is it in your mind uh, that makes product people so special? Because we do, I mean, if you think about them versus other disciplines, they want to be learning all the time. I mean, it, it, that's my experience of them. They're hungry for this, both, I think, learning, but also sense of community. I mean, what have you learned during the last nine years that help you form an opinion on why that might be? Well, I don't know, but it's true. <laughs> and it's fireworks, right? When you are next to a like-minded person who is sharing certain interests, like you don't even need to know them for a very long period of time in order to click. And I think that's part of the magic. Uh, so product brings a lot of different backgrounds together. I remember when I started the company, 
a lot of people, first of all, would say, well, you cannot teach this because you need to be a visionary, right? You need to be born in a certain way. Uh, well, I mean, I'm sure we all acquire certain talents when we are born, but you can definitely acquire many others and, and learn. Um, and then the, the, other, the other thing that I, that I learned is that in order to become a product manager, it's not just about coming from a specific background such as programming. Sure, it's incredible product managers that know how to code. Uh, but there's something beautiful about creating a product team, or in our case, a, a cohort of product management students with people from technical backgrounds, business backgrounds, marketing, operations, and see that at the end of the day, you need to acquire some of the other skills that you don't have. You, you need to be good enough at a lot of things. You'll probably be excellent at just one or two, but in order to excel as a leader, you need to know enough about how the whole puzzle works. And then eventually it's more about the soft skills, right? And um, to these, uh, for example, in my case, I consider myself a product leader. I might not be working directly with engineers anymore. Um, but I believe that that previous experience helped me have more empathy with those engineers. And I think those are some of the soft skills that might be maybe overlooked but are critical, especially as people think about taking those next steps. Oh yeah. Big time. Yeah. We, I, um, we've had several people on the pod who have talked with us about, you know, they were doing so well in their career arc or so they thought, and really what, you know, put the, the foot to the floor was realizing that they weren't doing the soft work. Right. And that's so important when it comes to product. Right. So whether it's bringing people along with the vision, whether it's making sure that people feel like they can actually share their opinions in the stakeholder meetings. Right. Uh, whether it's feeling safe enough to question the data. Right. A lot of that soft skills. Um, it's so important. Right. And it's best. A lot of those things, I think, are best learned in hands on observational settings. So which I think is something that product school, you know, is very well known for. Right. Kind of that hands on learning approach as opposed to uh, some lecturing at you and you taking notes and going back. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, obviously you said you're one of your, maybe two of your first startups were in education, like that hands-on approach is intentional, right? Why is that? And what's the science behind it, or at least the passion behind it from your perspective? Yeah. I mean, I just can't imagine it in any other way. Um, it's about building, right? And, and I think one misconception um, from the outside, sometimes is that as a product manager, you are not building anything because you are kind of coordinating, right? And the engineers code, the designers design, the marketers market, the salespeople sell. And then what is the product manager actually doing? Well, I believe, first of all, that pro good product managers need to know how to build. And that's why they come from very specific, for, for different, from different backgrounds. It's very hard to find someone who's like a purebred product manager who got that first PM job right after college. Um, but I also believe that in order to be a good leader, you really need to know what you're talking about. And uh, there is no other way to learn this than doing it. Sure, good content and the right environment can help you accelerate those situations and, and experience is something that counts. However, I haven't found in my life either as a founder of this company or in general as a human being, a replacement for actually using my hands to, to try something and, I, and sometimes even fail. Absolutely. I agree fully with that. Okay. So um, 
we're going to get into kind of the later years and and then to today. But what's been one of the hardest parts of the journey so far? I mean, from the outside looking in, um, and even with the amount that you've told us so far, right? Coming in, setting it up, selling out right away. Sounds pretty easy. Sounds like it's been successful. But I'm assuming that behind those, um, behind that exterior, there's probably been some pretty hard parts. Uh, and I guess I'm curious what our our audience can learn from those. Oh, my God. And, and thank you for sharing the, for, for asking this question. And I'm going to share it in the most honest way. I, I ended in the hospital um, uh, around the first year um, because of the amount of, of stress and work that I, that I had to put in. There was no replace. The same way we were talking about not having a replacement for hands-on learning. I also believe that there is no replacement for putting in the work. If you even want to have a chance at being successful, whatever that means. Um, so I was having literally two full-time jobs as I was running the, the business and I was also the instructor and I was also teaching most of the free workshops to attract new students for the next cohorts. So I had no life. I, I got married, uh, literally the first month and I started the company and I have to give kudos to my wife because, you know, without her support, this, this wouldn't even be possible. Um, it was really, really tough. The first two years, not being able to, to afford anything. I was reinvesting every single penny into, into growth. And the reality is that things don't get any easier. I mean, I, I learned how to balance my life. And now that I have kids, I have more reasons to, you know, cre create uh, more space for other things that are important in my life. However, that, um, I, I just can't, I just can't imagine a way, I just can't imagine how to even have a chance of being successful without, without really trying very, very hard. I think that's really important that you share that because many people who, whether it's doing their own startup or whether it's just putting their all into a, a product, right? It's really hard to know how to manage that balance of when is too much, is there too much? Um, and also it's easy, especially in this, social world that we live in to assume that things are much simpler or much more glamorous than maybe the reality is along the way. So thank you for sharing that during those first two years. And by the way, shout out to your wife. Thank you for supporting you so that you could keep going so that we have you here today. Um, but what metrics or what data points kept you going that said, no, Carlos, like this is hard, but look, it's starting to prove that it's working. This is, you know, what, what was the, and to me, I think in data, but maybe it was something else. What was the kind of guiding light that kept you saying, no, I keep persevering. I keep going on this. So, you know, my previous company, I did the opposite. I spent most of my energy raising millions from VC and optimizing for what I would consider today wrong metrics. Basically, we had a lot of growth from top of the funnel, but we weren't profitable. And uh, our product was trying to optimize for so many different use cases. And, and I know there's a model for that and it can work. It just wasn't my, my model, my definition of success or happiness. It took me to, to really burn, burn out to realize that. So when I decided to then go at it, because I don't know what else I would be doing otherwise <laughs> and start a company, even though I promised myself I wouldn't even try again. Um, I was like, you know what? I really want to redefine what it is success for me, not, not what it is success for my neighbor or for other people. And there's a lot of pressure in, in Silicon Valley, right? Like 
you, you read headlines around companies becoming unicorns about companies hiring so many people and all of that. And I was like, you know what? That maybe, but today I want to focus on one thing only. And it's a problem that I really care about, which is product, because I am the, I am the product in a way. Like I completely resonate with the problem I'm trying to solve. The other thing is I don't want to start by raising money. And there are trade-offs to that. That means that I might grow slower and that, um, but, but that's fine. I want to spend most of my time with my users. Sounds like product management, but it was just my own trying to do some soul searching. I realized that in my previous company, I was, yes, on, on paper, I was the CEO and overseeing the product team. But in reality, I, I was pitching uh, ideas to people that would have never used my product. And so I, I flipped the, the charts and I tried and I was like, hey, if this doesn't work, well, let me, let me just try it. I know there are other models, but I just know that the other model is not for me. And, and that's how, how we got started. So for the first seven and a half years, we bootstrapped the business and the business has been profitable since the beginning. And um, during the pandemic, there was an opportunity to raise capital. Online education was one of the industries that got a lot of headwinds, uh, sorry, tailwinds, right? Because people had to learn online. That was the only option. And in particular, what we teach is a skill that is very marketable. So our business tripled pretty much over the last, uh, during the pandemic. And that was a moment of truth for us to say, okay, I think it's time to go. Uh, we have definitely proven that there is something that is, that is working. We want to do it bigger. However, we want to do it in our own terms. We don't want now to repeat the same mistake and start raising expectations to a point that is unhealthy or that is unhealthy for me. So we decided to raise capital from a growth equity firm uh, that would allow us to keep the majority of the business that would be aligned with our vision to grow profitably. Even if we can afford to grow faster, that doesn't mean that we should do it. We're definitely going to grow faster now that we have capital, but not just at all costs. And that's a model that really resonates with me. And today, you know, we're 16, 18 months post fundraising event. Um, I'm very, very happy with that decision. And, and I think that is the type of businesses that I, that I want to be part of. I love that. So, I mean, uh, you know, not raising and spending just to drive top of the funnel is definitely one of the lessons, right, that you've come and brought into this. What is, uh, you know, another thing that's been a guiding principle for you guys um, since taking on this additional funding uh, and, and how is it influencing your growth strategy? It was amazing because one of the challenges of bootstrapping is that even if you have clarity on what to do next, sometimes there's just a financial limitation to how much you can invest. And the opportunity was so clear, not only in my mind as a visionary, like market-wise, we had more demand we can possibly serve. And um, some of the systems were also about to explode, right? Because we literally put together all the systems the best way we could to, to, to add the value in the, in, the, in the product, which is having a live online experience with an amazing product leader. That is what we will never sacrifice. And that's what, one of the things that actually a lot of big investors will ask to sacrifice in exchange for more growth. So it was time to invest in team and provide benefits to our people. Like literally when I started the company, I didn't even know what health insurance was. And, you know, like when my wife had her, her, when we had our first kid, there was no maternity, we had no maternity leave. And things that now I think about, I'm like, oh my God, 
we were just so naive and, and crazy. And so definitely raise the bar to take care of our people. And um, also now hire other people that we couldn't afford before. Uh, we were able to invest in better technology to streamline processes. And we also were able to grow our catalog of trainings, <clears throat> but we do it in a very thoughtful way. When we started the company, we only had one certification. It was called product manager certification for the aspiring PMs that want to get that first PM job. And we saw that the product world really evolved. And now it's not just about getting a PM job. There's really a career ladder for people to become senior PMs, lead PMs, directors, VPs, and even chief product officers. So we started creating certifications for the existing product managers so they could also grow their careers. Lovely. You were talking about the choice to take on uh, growth funding. And I'm curious, you, you also mentioned there's certain things that you will not sacrifice for growth. How did you pick your partner, right? Um, I'm sure you had a plenty of options for funding. Um, why did you choose the firm that you went with? Uh, can you share that? Because a lot of our listeners are considering taking on funding, right? And I think it would be useful to hear how someone who's so considered about how they're going to grow, who they're going to grow with, made a decision like that. Yes, I would say probably from failing before. And I, I share a little bit of context. Um, as I said in my previous company, more of a VC-backed play, right? We're growing at all costs. And there were so many good lessons learned there. But one of them was that just taking money uh, fired back because we needed the money. Like we weren't profitable. So I became pretty good at uh, pitching ideas and um, sharing a vision. And obviously I believe in that vision and the vision was being put in place, but it just required more and more capital in order to sustain an operation before it became profitable. So I look back and I realized that we had this complicated cap table with 17 different investors. And even people who had like a 0.1% had a strong opinion, right? And it became, I became more of a, a boardroom manager. I was half fundraiser to bring more capital, half facilitator of conversations between the people that were already in the system. And by the way, none of those things actually add value to the business. <laughs> so the, the important part was to take care of our customers, grow the business and make sure we were doing something good for them. So like th this is just not, this equation doesn't, doesn't work with me. So that's why I was burnt out from that experience. And my first reaction when I started product school was like, I, I don't want to raise money ever again. Now it changed my mind. I think you know, new data gives you new possibilities. And, and we realized that the, the timing was right for us to, to, uh, to take capital. And we were also in a position to also choose who to raise money from. That's something I didn't have the opportunity in the past. So we run a process with an investment banker. You know, in the private equity world, that's how it goes. I, I know VCs don't like the investment bankers, but in private equity, it's good to have an investment banker, run a proper process, talk to the different investors and, and, um, and, and take the time to really get to know each other because it's almost like a marriage. Like, yes, money is, is, is good. And, 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 and there is a reason why we're all having this conversation in the first place. But the reality is you're going, to you're going to get stuck with this person for at least the next three to five years. So you better like that person, <laughs> you know, because it's impossible to, man or at least I haven't seen a single company that was able to maintain like a up and to the right trajectory consistently. Even the companies that are growing, they have their own setbacks. So um, I really spent time to address um, those concerns and make sure that this was the right, the right fit in terms of what the expectations for the investors are. 
what uh, the, how they would feel about you know us co-creating a solution and not just following the instructions of someone just because they gave us money and and we had good options and uh, it was hard and actually the investor that we picked didn't give us didn't give us the biggest term sheet in terms of valuation and I'm very proud to say that because yes valuation is important but there's a range at the end of the day if you the valuation you are getting today is, is, is not the most important thing compared to really having a good chemistry with your investors. That's exactly what I wanted to, to get into. I mean, the chemistry, the skill sets, how they can how they can aid you. And it sounds like that was very much a part of your interview process um, and, and who you ultimately ended up selecting. So uh, I guess one question I have for you as we start to think about where Product School is today, you guys have done a lot, right? You've created Product School itself, you've created awards, you've got a book, right? You've got ProdCon. Um, so there's been a lot of product extension that you guys have done. Um, I guess the two things that I'm curious about, are there things that you've tried that haven't worked? Uh, one. Uh, and then the second question is, what's next? Where do you want to go? Oh. Love this because it's about the future. Um, so, yeah, so my, my approach to building a company is to build a community first. Meaning not everything that is built needs to be sold. Like all of the things that you mentioned, our events, conferences, uh, books, discussion forums, job boards, and others are absolutely free and available. And there's no catch like the big majority of the product managers that um, know about us don't pay us and that's fine. And, and, and I love it. And I just hope that they can get value uh, out of it. The business of product school is the training. That's uh, obviously from, from this uh, first awareness phase, there's a lot of people who are serious about investing in, in their careers and, and they take our certifications so they can accelerate their growth. Um, but for example, the, in terms of what has worked in the past or some of the failed experiments, you mentioned the awards. It's called the, the Prodi Awards. And I think this was the fifth year. <laughs> the first year was terrible because the, the approach was we're going to create the, uh, an award for the best tech products. So we had real estate tech, restaurant tech, and a lot of different categories. It's just so weird. And it was hard for people to even understand the, the, the categories or the nominees. So we, we, we didn't give up. What we did was to iterate and, and focus more on product management or tools for product managers. So the Prodi Awards today is the biggest award for, for the companies that are building for product managers. And the categories are very specific. So we have an A-B testing category. We have a road mapping category. We have a product analytics category. And our community are product managers. So they fully understand those subcategories and they are able to, to vote and, and nominate the products they think are best. That's a great example. And I think it's helpful for people to hear that, right? Because uh, it seems like, oh, you know, this has worked perfectly from the beginning, but it's nice to hear that there's been iteration, even in things like the awards, right? And the thing is, even in, in fifth iteration, there are still mistakes, right? And and because it's my baby, <laughs> I'm always giving feedback and, and, and getting frustrated about ideas on, on how to improve it. But I guess it, it just in our nature, and, and I, I believe other product managers are, as, the, the reason why they do it is because they have good intentions. They, they really want to build something. And, and the reality is that products are never finished. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about something that you guys have started speaking about recently. And it's this term product-led efficiency. Um, I think it's really timely uh, for a lot of our listeners and a lot of the product professionals out there. They have felt a bit whiplashed uh, is the general the general trend that we get um, from people is like, wow, you know, a year ago it was grow, grow, grow at all costs. Suddenly it's, whoosh, you know, uh, profitability at all costs. Um, you know, it's been challenging for many of our listeners who are just trying to make sure that their vision and their strategy is aligned with the business outcomes that are there for the company. And increasingly, efficiency, uh, operational efficiency, operational leverage is important. And so I thought it was interesting. You guys have recently started talking about this term product-led efficiency. And I would love you to talk a little bit about the the research and the findings behind that um, and also how people can learn more about it as well. Yeah, so we publish an annual report titled The Future of Product Management. And we try to highlight the, the trends and opportunities we see in our industry. And this is product-led is a huge trend. And then people add different suffix, product-led growth, product-led sales, product-led efficiency. But if we just focus on the first part, product-led, what's happening is that product is not a secret anymore. And it's really becoming a, a strategic function in the entire organization. Part of the reason is because now those organizations have a chief product officer, like around 50% of the Fortune 100 companies already have a chief product officer. That's huge um, because not too long ago, the highest ranked product person in the organization would report to a chief marketing officer or a chief technology officer. So we definitely have now support from the top. There's a clear career ladder from a product manager all the way up to chief product officer. There's clearly more technology now available for product managers, right? All of these tools that we, we, we nominate at the Prodi Awards didn't exist 10-ish years ago. Product managers used to piggyback on PowerPoints or Photoshop and other tools that were created for other teams. So, okay, after we have all of this market validation, this investment, this product is now at the, at the center of, of the entire company. There are more relationships between product uh, and other teams than ever before. Now it's time to prove value. And I think that's the whole point of product-led efficiency or, or basically showing business value. Uh, product managers tend to be very good at advocating for the user and proving user value, right? But sometimes that user value is not enough for the business. And I think that is the biggest opportunity for product leaders and, and also for product-led organizations is to really have a better integration because it's not that product managers are over here and business people are over there. We are all one team and user value without business value doesn't fly anymore. The same way, just business value for the sake of it kills long-term growth. And I think the product manager has to step up to have a better understanding and integration of what business value means. And even though in some cases they might not oversee PNL, because it, it's true that most product functions don't oversee PNL. I believe that that would be a very healthy exercise. Yeah, this is a conversation um, several of us have had earlier. And I, I mean, I think the the most important thing is whether or not you see oversee PNL, you need to understand the PNL of your product, right? You may not uh, oversee it, but you need to understand it and you need to understand the costs that are going into it and also the growth metrics that are coming off of it, which are part and parcel to most product 
owner's jobs or product manager's jobs today, but it's a mindset shift, right? It's a mindset shift that I agree with you. The CPO can help usher in, but you don't have to wait for a CPO on that either, right? Uh, Yeah, I think the other thing that you talk about a little bit there is the CPO concept. And I'm curious how, I mean, when I think back to the first CPOs I knew about, it was like early 2010s, right? Like uh, 2010, 2012, 2013. And now hearing the most recent results from your report about the percentage of it is great, but also looking at the percentage of businesses that are projecting that they will be product-led in the next few years. And I think that's another indication of product is growth, right? And and companies are waking up to it. What, what would you say to either current CPOs or people who are looking to get into the CPO role about how they can play that most strategic role outside of focusing on business value, right? What else is their role at that highest level within an organization? Well, business value is number one, in my opinion. Um, in addition to that, uh, there has to be a really, I go back to business value. I just can't imagine a C-level product executive that is not obsessed around really showing real business value. Because like long gone are the days where product or yeah, was just focusing on like the research and like adding user value there. I know there's a lot of talk uh, around like creating a structure with using OKRs as part of a strategy and, and break down OKRs into roadmaps and breaking down those, uh, those roadmaps into different initiatives. That is fantastic. But someone needs to bring the bacon home. And I believe the CPO is in charge of that. And of course, there are other important functions that would apply to other C-level executives, such as building a strong team and all of that. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So we're getting to that time in the show where I'm going to ask my favorite question, uh, which is if there was a museum that was dedicated to the world's most important products, now they don't need to be the most successful, um, but the most important products, what would you say should go in that museum and why? Beautiful question. Um, And maybe we can create that museum one day. I would love that. I think that should exist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, when we talked before about curiosity and, and how important it is to me and to many other product leaders to always stay hungry and to always be learning. And I would love to finally, regardless of the name of the museum, to see a museum that can be much more agile and dynamic than most of the museums I go. If you think about museums in general, like the other day I went to the ice cream museum. I know it's probably not the most intellectual museum, but I went to the ice cream museum. <laughs> and it just takes forever to set that up. By the time it's set up, it's kind of outdated. So I think it would be beautiful to envision a museum where you can actually update things quickly and hopefully in a digital format that doesn't require too much moving physical pieces. But if I had to pick some of those physical pieces to be in in the museum, I would just pick one. for me, like my, my favorite physical piece, the thing that really got me into all of this craziness is my, it's my first, it's my first Mac. Um, when I, when I joined computer science, I didn't even have a laptop. Um, couldn't afford it, but also it wasn't that mainstream. And I remember when my parents bought me that big thing, it was a Macintosh. 
Yes, the huge one. Uh, I just I just went crazy. So that holds a very special place in 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 my 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 heart, my museum. Oh my gosh, I love that. You you talking about it being this immersive and kind of experiential thing. We definitely need to have a wing that's dedicated to the innovation space. And because one of my favorite things to do is there's um I love car shows. And the reason I love car shows, specifically ones that are um that include old cars and new cars, is it's remarkable to see the transformation of cars from 1900s to now and see the progression. It's like uh, as if we were to build your wing of innovation with the MacBook to start with that big gray one and then go to the colorful uh, one and then go in like to see that rate of innovation. I think um, computers are one way to see it, but I think cars are another way to see amazing, uh, amazing innovation over time. So we'll have to open up a few innovation wings within the museum of uh, most important products. You know, another crazy idea. Um, at some point, I want us to create a, a documentary or a movie yeah. about product leaders or product managers. I, I think it's a lot of um, information around the founders. And don't get me wrong, that's important. But product leaders are there, you know, in the front lines and they don't usually get the credit they deserve. And in a way, what we're doing with Product School is to create that platform for them to, to share and to give back. And I hope that we can continue finding different formats for, for them to, to get the, the recognition that they, they deserve. In a way, that's what Nike is doing for athletes, you know, how they really put them on a pedestal. We're trying to put product leaders on a pedestal. Highlight those voices for sure. Okay, well, you're going to get an influx of inbound entries about people who want to be in your product leader movie. So get ready for that now. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. It was so fun to have you, Carlos. So nice to have you. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.